Well, good morning. And I got good news. Just other than the gospel, the gospel's the good news, but we got water now, so. <laughs> hey, let's give those guys a hand. They got here at like seven or uh, eight, and the water was just flowing down the hill, and Joey and JT, they just hopped right on it. They went and got a, an excavator, and they got after it. So very, very thankful for, for their service. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me. I did not turn there. Galatians chapter 4, there we go. And before we get going, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, I praise you for calling us your child, for the adoption that we're about to read about. God, I, I, I praise you that your son redeemed us by his blood so that we could be your heirs and that we get to live a life in just walking and knowing your love. We're told perfect love casts out all fears. God, we don't have to fear tomorrow because we, we hold hands with the king. Lord, open our eyes. Please, please do a work of your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we'll be in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Uh, we're continuing our series called Captivated. The idea is what captivates your heart, you're going to live for. So if you're captivated like the, the people of Galatia, some, some, some who were in that church, by the law, by pride, by what you can produce for God, then you're going to look a lot like these people attempting to create little clones of yourself and your culture not of Christ. If you're captivated by the love of Jesus, you're going to live in a way that Christ is cloning himself in you. And you're going to, because of that, make disciples of Christ. So let's take a quick step back and let's remember the context of what we're reading. So Paul, he's writing to uh, the Galatian people Christians who, who are in this region. Paul started these churches and he's writing as a father who loves his children deeply who are caught up in some messed up stuff. The tone of the letter at best is harsh. <laughs> like he calls them fools. He calls them um, bewitched. He, he calls them names pointing out that they've been taken captive by this stuff. By this, this false doctrine, he's rebuked them all the way through. He's rebuked the ones who've brought the false doctrine into the church, but he's also rebuked those who have allowed the false doctrine to stay in and to go unchecked. Like, like <clears throat> he, he gives an example with his confrontation and with Peter. Do y'all remember that from chapter two? He calls him Cephas there. Peter was silent. And he didn't speak truth and love. And what happened to the entire church at Antioch? They were taken captive. And, and even the one who, who he loved, Barnabas, he was taken captive along with Peter and the rest of the church. By this legalism and... Let's be honest about what legalism really is. It's spiritual immaturity. 
One of our verses we've read over and over and over is Proverb 27.6, and we'll, we'll need it for today as well if you'll look at the screen. It says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Paul loved the body of Christ. Building up the kingdom of God, that, that's why he did this in love, in love for the body of Christ, in love in, in building up the, the kingdom of God, and also because he knows the individuals that are there, right? But doing the hard word of a hard work of speaking truth in love has a cost. We've all done it before, and it's of possibly wounding someone you love. But Paul's willing to do it because he knows what's at stake. What's at stake is the testimony of Christ in these people's eternal destiny. That's what, that's what we need to remember as we walk through this with Paul, and we see situations that we're walking in. It's so much easier just not to say anything. But when we don't say anything, we're going to look up like Peter and we'll see leaders and the entire church taken captive by legalism and spiritual immaturity. So this is a necessary thing. This morning, we're going to gaze into Galatians 4 and, and into the riches of, of the love and grace of God being poured out on the people by, and on us by his adoption. We'll look at our inheritance as well as what the cost was. So if you're a note taker, these are, this is the, the, the main point for today. I like to break it up two ways. So what is true? Here's what's true. We've been redeemed by the Son, adopted by the Father to be heirs of the kingdom. That, that's what's true, but that's a mouthful. What do we do with that? <laughs> so this is what we do with it. We are to live this life and, and the next as heirs to God Almighty. So as we walk in this life, because I think so many Christians are just preparing for the next life. We're heirs now. And in, we need to be walking as sons and daughters of God Almighty now. So let's, let's read our passage together. We'll start in verse 1. I mean that the heir as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So the first point that we're going to look at is verses 1 through 3. And we're going to look at the guardian. Paul, so far, he's illustrated the law in a, multiple different types of ways. As a taskmaster, um, a moral guardian, a prison guard. And now he's, he's talking about 
this, 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 the law as a legal guardian. In a Roman culture, a child, though he was heir to the house, um, while he was in the house, had no say to what was going on. I mean, just like in our house, right? Like, my daughter's heir to what I have, but she's four. She doesn't have any say in what we're doing or how we're spending the money. The child in, Ro in the Roman world was only told what to do, what he must do, what he should do, and what he shouldn't do. And that's what this verse is saying when, when it says he's no different than, the, than a slave. There's just commands given. And when we look at verse 2, we see the child is put under this guardian until a day set forth by the father. When a, Roman, when a boy in the Roman world would turn 14, you got some 14-year-olds in here maybe, when, when they, they were considered no longer a child, but they also weren't a man yet. And if you were in a wealthy Roman family, what the father would do is he would appoint a guardian or a manager over you to, to, to curate your life to, so that you would be learned, so that you would be uh, worthy of the title and position and, and, and all the things that come along with this inheritance. So the boy at 14 is technically come of age, but he still wasn't free to do what he wanted. And when he turned 25 when, would be when he was finally released into the world with his full inheritance. The analogy is that of a minor. Although he's an heir to a noble name, he has great expectations, wealth, honor, position, power. He was still a minor. And for all practical purposes, he's no better than a slave. That's, that's, that's what's going on in these, these verses 1 and 2. But in verse 3, Paul ties the illustration back to us because if not, we're walking around like, okay, that's cool. So verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In verse 1 and 3, we see the same word here for child. And it's, it's the word for infant. Like, they, they, like we have different words for children. They did too. Um, our translator, translators translated as child, but the words like infant, possibly a toddler. Children that age, they must be taken care of, right? You tell them what to wear, what to eat, when they should get a nap. Uh, nearly every decision is made for them because they don't have the mental capacity or ability to make good decisions for themselves. They make decisions, right? But not good decisions for themselves. And this is what Paul's saying. This is the spiritual state of everyone who chooses to live under the law. They are like spiritual infants. If you see someone who desires legalism or some sort of Jesus plus theology, you can know this about them. They are spiritually immature. They are spiritual infants. It doesn't matter the age. We're talking about their spiritual posture. And it's not your job to crush them. Let me remind you this. It's not our job to crush them for being wrong or being immature. What we should do is seek to correct them in love. Like when a baby poops its pants. 
They're mentally immature. We don't get mad at them. I'm not saying we enjoy cleaning up the mess, right? But we're not getting mad at the baby. We clean up the mess. And when we deal with people who are spiritually immature, there will be mess behind them, often nastiness in their wake. But what we have to do is correct them in love. We have to continue to love them through their sin so that we could bring them and draw them closer to Christ. Often people who are spiritually mature, when in conflict, they respond tyrannically like a toddler, right? They get mad. But here's the deal. Are we okay leaving them where they're at? We, as a people, must speak truth in love. Uh, this is not good of me, but one of my... Uh, how, how do I say it? Guilty pleasures is Dr. Phil. <laughs> and you see so many adult children, I'm calling them children. Why are they on there? It's because they're emotionally stunted. They were never corrected. They were never made to do anything. I think that's why we get to a space where somebody can be 50 and 80 and they're spiritually stunted is because no one came to them in love. I'm going to say many Christians have been spiritually stunted by the church. I'm going to blame the church for this because the church leadership didn't have the love and courage to correct gossip Church, we can't be okay with gossip. Uh, or a person who is, they're just by nature divisive and they like to stir stuff up. We can't be okay with that. That's, gonna, that's going to hinder the work of God. Or a person who's living in some sort of open sin. We have to be a people who are courageous enough and loving enough to not be okay with it. Not intending to crush somebody, but building them up by speaking truth and love. I talked to a man I love and respect who pastors a church. Um, he, he's been pastoring this church just a little, just a few more, few more months than I've been here. And I'm witnessing a church internally combust because they're allowing, in this case, a deacon's wife, to go unchecked. She has gone to all the deacon families and others in the church creating false accusations. I, unfortunately, I, I, I worked on this on Wednesday and I talked to them on Wednesday, but my heart's just broken for what's going on there. She's went to all these people and she's made false accusations and many of these people were there and know that it's not the case and none of them corrected them. All the, the allegations have proved to be false and untrue. And still, no one in the church has corrected her or her husband. Come to find out, they have been the cause of the last church split and running off the last handful of ministers that have been at that church. Had anyone loved them enough, let me say it like that, had anyone loved them enough over the last 30 years, then possibly this church would be a thriving church in its context. But they've allowed sin to go unchecked. 
and they trusted family ties over biblical mandates. The church is, the, the church there is just depleted because those who are spiritually mature, like we can look at the, these people and point fingers and all this, the, the ones that are walking in sin, that's not the ones who really are holding the bag. It's those, there are spiritually mature people there who are staying silent. Those are the people who are at fault. Spiritual immaturity is not okay. And when we allow it to go on, we're discipling people in spiritual maturity. And as we disciple people in spiritual maturity, what happens is spiritual immaturity becomes a generational sin. I can give you hundreds of examples like this one. I just had the conversation this week. Or you can drive from city to city and look at dilapidated houses of God as monuments to what happens when we allow spiritual immaturity to lead in the church. Thank goodness I hadn't been here long enough to know anything that's really going on. I'd be scared to preach this one. <laughs> but what's going on is they forget whose kingdom they're building. There's a severe spiritual poverty going on right now. And it's because the spiritually mature were not brave enough to speak truth in love. The country that, that we live in, I'm going to say it like this. It's church saturated. There's no telling how many churches are in McLennan County. The country's church-saturated, but gospel-deprived. It's because we start navel-gazing. We, we start building our own kingdom instead of saying, I'm about the work of God. How is he leading us? I, I've got example after example of how God is, has been moving through places. There's a, there's a friend of mine, he's in a, he was called to a rural place in Oklahoma. Dead community, dying community. Hundreds of people were coming to Jesus. Churches realized they were dying and they were just giving their buildings to this church. Eventually he was preaching in three uh, cities on a Sunday and he would preach four times a Sunday. The movement of God came to a screeching halt. They fired him without cause because there were spiritually immature persons in leadership and there, nobody had a backbone to, to, to speak up and say the truth. Hey, he's okay. He's fine. He, God's taking care of him. But you need to know, allowing spiritual in, infants to run the church and lead churches will kill churches. Again, I don't have to convince you of it. Just drive from town to town and look at empty buildings. We like to say we can't judge people. Judge not lest you be judged. We like that one. 
because I mean, stay out of my business. Yeah, we can't judge people's eternal destiny, but we're told to judge people in the church and call out sin. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul's doing in this book. This very book, that's what Paul's doing. I told you he's called them so far in the book, immature, fools, bewitched. In chapter one, he's calling the curse of God on those who continue to live this way. The, the curse of God's not a nice thing. He's talking about hell. Like Paul's serious about this. I mean, think about this. The qualifications of pastor and pastor, elder, overseer, whatever you want to call that title, and, and deacon, the other office of deacon, all these things that we're giving about them are things that we are to judge them by. That's judging. The reason we can't allow open sin to go unchecked in the church is because it destroys the testimony of God in the community and has dire consequences on those who witness it going unchecked. What do I mean by that? When you go and talk to somebody you love about Jesus, what do they say? Oh, the church is full, full of bunch of hypocrites. Oh, the church hurt, hurt my family this way. Oh, the church, all oh, the church. And they start naming this. It's because we've allowed things to go unchecked. And I'm not talking about this place specifically. I'm just talking about it in general. Because you can just about go anywhere and have that same conversation, right? What happens is when we do this, we create a culture of spiritual in infants that gossip, slander, and stir up division. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about it. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression who, who are spiritual, uh, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of not meanness, gentleness, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And we talk about bearing one another's burdens, like going and helping them do like physical things. That is yes. But what's the context here? Bear one another's burdens so as to fulfill the law of Christ. We have to help people walk from where they're at closer to Jesus. The goal is to see them restored and grow. 1 Timothy 5.20. This is Paul writing to Timothy. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest might stand in fear. Rebuking sin is not just good for the individual who's rebuked. It's good for the body of Christ. That doesn't make us feel comfortable, but that's what it says. 1 Corinthians 5.12 for, for, for what have I told, uh, for what have I do with judging outsiders? Like the church is real quick to say, uh, talk about the, the culture in America. Hey, we get it. They're lost. People living like lost people. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Titus 3.10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. It's talking about church discipline. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 24. And the Lord's servant must, be, uh, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance. This is why we would, this is why we confront that God would grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they might come to their uh, senses and escape from the snares of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Sin in the church, Paul describes it in the section right above this as gangrene. It will spread. But our goal, let's be clear, when we speak truth in love, our goal is not to crush our goal is not to embarrass, but to build up the body of Jesus, to build that individual up in love and truth and grace for the good of that individual and for the advancement of the kingdom in that community. Like, don't separate this from God's gospel work going out. We need to decide that people like us don't allow spiritually immature, spiritual immaturity to go unchecked in our levels of leadership because we know what's at stake. We realize that it's the testimony of Christ and it's also what's at stake is the souls that God is sending us to. Let's look back at verse three. And we, we also need to decide what these elementary principles are. Some people think it's just the generic elementary principles that you might find in like Romans 1. I'm, I lean more towards uh, it's the, the law because of the language in chapters 3. It, it talks about the law in a similar way, but that's open for debate. But I look at it as the law <clears throat> with the, the words of enslavement and guardianship. But without Christ, we're enslaved to the law and the standard of the law. One of the hallmarks of a spiritually immature person is their desire for legalism. People who are in Christ or maybe claim to be in Christ who desire to govern themselves by the law, that's legalism. By the way, everyone who wants to talk about revival right now, like revival's pop, let's talk about revival. I want revival. There will be no revival where legalism reigns. Legalism hinders and quenches the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit revival doesn't come from making people conform to your preference of church or your style of church. But when people fall on their knees and confess their sin and call out to Jesus in repentance, prayer, the work of the Spirit transforms. He doesn't conform me to look like you. Legalism for us looks like making people conform to our version of the law. Legalism says things like this, and you'll recognize stuff. You need to do this. You need to do that. You must not go here or there. You must not wear your hair like that or your clothes shouldn't look like that. Um, you should give the church this much money. You should, you should boycott these types of people. If somebody thinks differently than our circle, then they are our enemy. That's childish. And it creates restrictions where God did not create restriction. Legalism is a bully that puts people in bondage. Jesus was no bully. He was kind. He did confront sin, 
But who was Jesus the hardest on? Pharisees. He was the hardest on people who, who bullied others with their legalism. In so doing, they deface God and the law of God. They, they say God looks like this when he doesn't. Christ freed us from the elementary principles. Uh, the Greek word for elementary, it, it's talking about like elementary rules. And elementary rules are only suitable for children. We don't raise our hand at work to get up and go to the potty anymore, do we? We don't, we don't when we are in public places, walk in straight lines. Children have to because they're chaotic and they're not paying attention to anybody but themselves and they run into everybody. But once we've matured, yeah, we're still using those principles. We don't need them anymore. We, we, it's something that's ingrained in us. It's natural to us. The, the, the root of the Greek word for elementary means to walk or march in rank. And this is the heart of legalism, to make everyone march in rank and file of what you believe is true. Making people conform for, for a person like this, it's just a power trip. And it is evidence of spiritual immaturity. Christ has freed us from all these man-made rules and regulations. We're not allowed to do as we please. I want that to be clear. In Christ, we're not allowed to do as we please. We are to master the principles, the elementary principles that God has given to, to, to govern us. But as mature adults, we get to live through the law of love. So we must decide that we're going to be a people of Proverbs 27.6 who are faithful to wound a friend because profuse are the kisses of enemies. I'm not going to be your enemy. I'm going to be a friend. People like us are faithful friends. People like us are concerned about God growing those who we love. People like us don't allow spiritual immaturity to derail the work of God and the mission of God in our church. We see God moving here, right? We see him moving. And we have to be a people who determine to say yes to God. And that means we have to steward well the people he's given us and that we're reaching out to. And if we're going to do that, we cannot allow spiritual immaturity to reign in our body. So let's look at verse 4. And we're going to see the move from slaves to son. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has set the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, Jesus came at the perfect time. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase. It's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome created peace by the sword. For the first time in history, there weren't little skirmishes going up everywhere because Rome would come on the scene and just annihilate you piece by, piece by the uh, sword. But at the same time, they connected, almost like the internet in the 90s, they connected the known world with this Roman road because they had to get, be able to get their armies to the edges of their uh, empire very quickly. 
So the entire known world was connected by a road system. Ideas and thoughts were able to flow quickly. And the other thing that they did to be able to participate in this Roman world, you had to be fluent in a common language, and that common language was Greek. No other time in history was the world ever this connected. And because of, because of these things, this is how verse 4 can be true that God sent his son born of a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law at the perfect time. This, this, is, this, is, this is why the gospel was able to expand so quickly because it was at the perfect time. Before that moment in history, the world was never connected in that way. And God the Father sent his son to be born of a virgin, showing his deity and his humanity. Jesus submitted himself to the law and think about that. He submitted himself to the rules that he created. Jesus created the law. We could not keep the law, but Jesus did. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but Jesus didn't. He perfectly kept the law. And God being rich in love and mercy, he sent his son to die on our behalf. And the Bible tells us that if we, were, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we will be saved from our sins and delivered from hell to heaven. But I love, I love this word redeemed. And we talked about this word redeemed a couple weeks ago. And it means to buy. And if you weren't here, uh, let me tell you just, Jesus bought you by his blood. The God man, the cost of your salvation was the blood of Jesus. The God man poured out his blood for you so that you could have salvation. Jesus traded his life for years, thereby redeeming you on the cross. Jesus, the sinless one, was executed for sinful men, for the sins of men. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you won't just be redeemed from hell, but you will be redeemed as an heir of God. That's different. Look at verse five with me. He did all this. He redeemed us um, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might re receive adoption as sons. The Jewish culture didn't have an idea of adoption, but the Romans did. The Romans would have understood adoption as the means to pass along wealth. In the Roman world, you, couldn't, you could write off your own children, but if you adopted a son... If you adopted a son, you could never write them off. It was required by law that they maintained a piece of your inheritance. It was actually better to be adopted than a natural born son. To, to be adopted, there would be a price paid. You would have to be redeemed. And when you were redeemed the Roman, uh, to the Roman government, your name would legally be changed and your status would be changed and you would have a new family you would have a new position in society and your position in the, the, the inheritance of the father was sealed. Jesus redeemed those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the price of your sonship was the blood of the son of God. In Christ, we are blood-bought, born-again sons and daughters of the most high God, amen? You should ask yourself, what motivated God to adopt us? 
That, that should be a question because I think as like American Christians, we just like, we deserve it because we're so awesome. But what was God's motivation? Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 tells us, in love, what was his motivation? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God's motivation for adopting us, God's motivation for sending his son was his love for his creation. He loves us and that's why he sought us, that's why he bought us, that's why he redeemed us with his blood. And because of this, we get to live in union and communion with God forever. But our adoption doesn't start when we cross the veil of eternity, right? Now we get to live as heirs of God. And we've been adopted not on our own merit, but based on God's love. There's no failure that hasn't already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Your failure is not a part of who you are in Christ. You are defined by being in Christ. You're, you'll find that you're secure. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent, his, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Those who are sons of God have the Holy Spirit of God living in them, and God lives inside us. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 talks about the Spirit of God who lives inside of us. It says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Because the Spirit lives in us, we are guaranteed, that is our seal, that is our stamp, that is our promise that we will reign forever with God in eternity. The Holy Spirit also illuminates our eyes to this new relationship with the Father. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we get to cry, Abba, Father. That's what Jesus calls uh, God whenever he's in the garden right before he faces the cross. He, he cries out to Abba, Father. It's, it's, a, it's our English word like daddy. It's, uh, have you ever been in a public place with your kids? And there are kids everywhere calling out to their parents and whatever, it's a kid's voice calling out to their parents. But when your child calls out daddy, the same words, what does that do to your ear? You hear them. We're not just generic children of God in creation once we come to faith in Jesus Christ. God is our Father. He hears us when we call. Our Father's kind, and He desires to take our pain, and He desires to take our suffering and our hopes and all these things because He loves us. And if you are blessed enough to have a relationship with a Father that you know loves you, isn't it fun to talk to Him? Some of you, you're putting your relationship with, with your father on God, and maybe he's unplugged or doesn't care. That's not the picture of God Almighty. Look finally at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. 
We are sons of God, not slaves. We, I don't know if you ever heard that, that preacher growing up. I just, Lord, I just want to be a street sweeper in heaven. I appreciate the sentiment. Just want to sweep those pearly streets of gold. I, I, I appreciate it, but there's no idea of us being servants in heaven. We are sons and daughters to reign with God, and heaven is our inheritance to be with him forever. That's something that I have to get my mind around because it's hard. But we've been adopted as sons, not as servants. We've been adopted as sons, not as slaves. If you were adopted to the greatest fortune in the world has ever known, and that person tells you, hey, as many people as you can, you can get to come to me, they can have a portion of this. And it will in no way take away for what you have. Would you be shy about sharing? Would you be apologetic? Would you be worried about offending them? No, you wouldn't. We wouldn't be silent. We have this opportunity to bring people into this kingdom. And instead of being the guy that just shames everyone for not doing like gospel presentations, let's, let's get practical. How can we, how can you, how can I participate in growing the kingdom, in building the kingdom of God? I think often it's because we, we get this uh, paralysis by analysis because we, we decide, that, all right, we got to share the word with everybody or, and we just end up sharing the word, word with nobody. Or it's that, that same mentality about going and working out. Like, all right, I'm going to do all this research and know all the science behind working out, and I'm going to then start working out and what ends up happening. We're going to work out. So let me give you three practical things we can do, okay? Just real quick, three things. If you can remember three things, you got it. I think we got a slide for it. Maybe we don't. It's called the three eyes. I'm going to ask you from now until Easter if you'll participate in this thing. It's called Who's Your One, all right? So the first step is to identify. I want you to, we've been praying about it for a while. Who's one person that is lost, maybe far from God? Maybe, maybe, They've just on your heart that you, they're Christians, but they're, they, they're just not in church anymore. What I'm going to ask you to do, there, there's that, uh, Brandon made the thing out in the lobby called Who's Your One. Get a green ball and write their name or their initials on it and put it in there. And when you do that, you're saying, I'm going to invest. I've identified who that person is, and I'm going to invest in praying for them from now until Easter. So, you're, going to, you're saying, I'm going to pray for them every day. So if you write George down, I don't know a George in the community, so I feel good about this. If you write George down, you're saying, I'm praying for George every day without fail. I'm going to pray for George. So you're, you've identified them and you're investing your time and your prayers, but I'm going to ask you to do just a little more investment. Maybe you text George and say, hey, hey man, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. Then maybe you invite George over to a family dinner. Maybe you uh, invite George out to coffee. Somehow in, in that time frame, invest in George. Figure out 
what his hangup is, why he's not connected to God, why, why, why he hasn't put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Figure out, invest in George. Hey, it's great that you, you, you invest in somebody else, in lots of other people, but I'm just asking for one. Look at all these people in this church building. If we all invested in one family or one person, what would that do in this community? It would be a great change. So then the last thing I'm gonna ask you to do is after you identify, after you invest, that you would invite. So what's invite look like? Maybe you invite them to know Jesus. Maybe you feel confident enough to share Christ with them. That's wonderful. And what I'm gonna ask you to do, because I want us to see God moving through this community together. When you invite them to know Jesus, there's a little orange ball out there put their name on that and put it in there so that we can see, we can see our testimony going out into the community. Cause I want to see, I want to represent what's actually happening here. Cause I think that's going to encourage the entire body of faith, but maybe you're not confident enough to invite them to, to, to know Jesus. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. Start inviting them to your community group, to your Sunday school class, to service, but invite them to join a, a, a group of believers. Because I can tell you what, if they come on a Sunday morning, I'm going to share the gospel with them. I, I promise you that. And when, when they come after being invited, take and write their initials on, on that orange ball and put it, put it in there. And what, what we will see, I believe, when we are all participating together and praying together and not, not ethereally talking about all the people we need to reach, but when we decide one person a piece that we're gonna go to, God's gonna do great things through this community of faith. So if you will, stand on your feet and we're gonna pray together. I'm gonna ask if you're a believer during this time, ask who is your one? Who is the one person that God is laying on your heart? And that after service, you go into the lobby or maybe later this week or next, next Sunday, go write their name down and put it in there. And that you would invest in, in, in praying for them weekly. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm, I'm gonna be down front. I would love to have a conversation with you. Or uh, there are deacons in the back. They would love to pray with you. There's Sean, there's Greg. They're the two standing back by the door. They would love to pray with you. I'm gonna be in the front. I would love to pray with you. But let's be a people who say yes to God. Let's be a people who are vulnerable. And when something's on their heart, they're willing to go pray with somebody. Let's, let's be a people who are about the work of expanding the kingdom of God here in China Spring and around the world.